This is Cambridge Judge Business School's online knowledge centre with expert commentary, analysis and insights into the issues of the day. Managers are frequently troubled by questions like, why is it so difficult to get teams to achieve their full potential? How can conflict emerge from apparent alignment? Is that conflict harmful or helpful to the group dynamic? Often metaphors from the world of sport are used as examples of motivational best practice and good teamwork, but according to Dr. Mark Deronde, these commonly used sports-related images are hackneyed and superficial comparisons, which actually conceal substantial lessons that managers could learn from high-performance athletics. His book, There is an I in Team, tests notions about teams and explores new ways to view team potential as a path to business advantage. Is that what he had in mind at the outset? Principally to try and diffuse a cliché that's been around for a while. Cliché in some ways has already been disbanded by Michael Jordan, the American basketball star. An uh, interesting encounter with Tex Winter, his coach, when he'd been brought into play fairly late in the game. He did extremely well and was very proud of himself coming off the, f- off the court. And Tex Winter said, well, Michael, you know, there is no I in team. So Michael looked at him and said, there is an I in win. So which way do you want it? And so, uh, because it's probably one of the most popular cliches, um, what I try to do is to take that one head on and say, well, in fact, the I team is pretty important. Not because we want to somehow celebrate egotism or selfishness, uh, but because teams can only be managed effectively if people keep out a very clear eye for the different individuals that make up a team, because individuals are different. I think part of the, the difficulty is that when you look at much of the work done on teams, some very excellent work as well, you, you find that teams are often treat as, as if they were individuals. You know, they're taken as their own unit of analysis. What people forget is that within teams, even within teams that on the face of it are very effective, are very distinct individuals, people with very different prejudices, loyalties, beliefs, desires, ambitions. And to make a team work well, it's pretty important for the team's sake to be very careful to see how people are different within that team and to manage them differently as a result. Which comes first, team, performance, or performance by the team? That's an interesting question. I'd say performance. There's a real risk in placing so much emphasis on a team and on a team as being a harmonious unit that it it can go at the expense of performance. And the assumption many people make is that harmony, team harmony, somehow is a cause or precursor for performance. So the better you and I get along, uh, the better we will perform. Uh, A lot of the evidence nowadays points exactly the other way. And it intuitively seems right. It's the fact that um, if you want to try and get people to bond as a team, give them something difficult to do. That will allow them to hopefully have something to feel good about collectively, and that bonds a team far more than the kind of exercises that we, we tend to set up for our people. I mean, how many businesses haven't gone astray having spent, you know, thousands of pounds sending people into the woods or canoeing with some idiot from market you know uh, playing games and having as a punishment having colleagues spank other colleagues you know with yard signs i mean we've got plenty of examples of this and many of them don't work well i mean go online read the various blogs people have written about the experiences of team building exercises and they just don't have the effect that it's desired and it's all fueled by by an assumption that if we get the team bonding right we get a team right and performance will come i think that's completely wrong uh, we need to get the performance right, and then people will 
with a platform on which to bond. I'd go even further than that and to be a little bit bold, which is that I think if you can do without a team, I think you should. Teams are so difficult to manage. Uh, a lot of organizations, I think, are far better off getting people to work together as a working group, meaning that everyone knows what he or she needs to do. There's one person who will coordinate and tie the different bits of rope together and take ownership of that. Um, everything is pretty transparent. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. I think that's a much easier way of working than trying to get people to work as a team where they are much more mutually accountable, where they collectively decide upon what they want to do and when they should do it by. We think of teams as being relatively sexy and something that organizations should be engaged in and should promote. I'm not sure that's actually right. Ironically, since I you know, do extensive work on teams, I think teams, if you can avoid them, you should because they're very difficult. I sometimes wish that organizations would spend as much time on making their organization psychologically safe as they did on trying to get people to work together in teams. Now, by psychological safety, what you're implying there is that you want everybody within that group or team to have a voice and not be afraid to air exactly. an opinion. Exactly. So what I mean by psychological safety is that even the most junior person will feel empowered enough to stand up and say, you know, I'm not sure this is a good idea, and take a risk that he or she may actually be wrong. What you find instead, and this is true in sports, it's true in business, it's very, very true in the medical fields, and we've got plenty of evidence for this, is that people will self-censor. They will self-censor because they don't like looking stupid. They will self-censor because they prefer to defer to authority because, after all, that means that they don't have to take accountability for whatever decision is being made. Now, how do you solve this issue of psychological safety? And that's, um, that's an easy one to tackle. Here's a comment or suggestion made by a, a CEO I uh, dealt with relatively recently as part of a teaching program. He says that when he hires people, he tells them that he wants everyone to ask him one donkey question a day. And a donkey question, he says, is the kind of question that is likely to be a silly question because it's something you should have known the answer to. Um, but it might be a good question. And so he says, don't ask me more than one a day, but ask me one a day. Actually, I'd be happy if people around me would ask me one such question a week. I think I'd be delighted. It's the, the idea is just simply for people to speak out when they need to speak out because it takes away any resentment they might feel themselves about being quiet and also, it, it's, it could be an excellent source of ideas. But the implication is that it's going to be relatively inefficient. And it will annoy some people around the table some of the time. And so it needs to be very well understood why, in fact, this is a good way forward. You concentrate quite a lot on, on sports teams and, and professional teams. The word conflict comes up from time to time mm. within a team. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Conflict in team can actually be a good thing. It depends on the nature of the conflict. If the conflict is of a cognitive kind, people have different ideas. And if the problem they need to solve collectively is a creative one, then that's exactly what you want. Uh, conflicts can be bad if it's relational conflict, which means you actually actively dislike someone for reasons that are not just contained within the ideas that they represent. How to solve conflict is, is, is a tough one. Um, here's a nice example. Uh, it relates to um, a coach of the army rowing crew in West Point. He was faced with a crew that was relatively dysfunctional. You know, how was this expressed? Well, he continued to get emails from members in the crew uh, expressing their unhappiness of the people they were rowing with. They didn't like these people, they didn't trust these people. And he came to the conclusion that possibly what, what derailed this team is the fact that they had insufficient confidence in the abilities of each other. So what he did is the following. It's a very interesting thing to have done. He had his rowers from his crew line up in pairs. Now, this is the varsity crew, the most important crew of West Point, a crew that had been beaten by the junior varsity crew for weeks on end, which made the crew very insecure. So he had them line up, and he then had them wrestle each other for 90 seconds at a time. 
something they didn't want to do initially and something they didn't tell the risk. He's a strong, big man. Uh, they know how to fight. They're here to row. Um, and if they get injured, because that may jeopardize the place in the crew. So he had him fight for 90 seconds at a time, and then he changed the pairs. And after he controlled the pairs, of course, they ended up in a laughing heap. He had them take the boat out for an outing. They had the best ever outing. They packed up the boat, and they had a very big race a few days from that moment and gave performance that astounded even you know, the best expectations. See, so was really clever about what he did, is that by having them wrestle each other, for the first time ever, they had a chance to feel physically how strong the various different people in their team were and their crew were. Um, and I think to feel that firsthand through something as high risk as wrestling gave them the kind of confidence they needed to persist, to go back to the boat and row. The problem is, of course, in working life, what's the equivalent of wrestling? You know, but sometimes conflict in teams may simply be due to the fact that I don't really know how good you are. One of the other issues that you touch on briefly in the book is that of boredom. You've got highly challenged people within a group, within a team. Mm. They can't be like that all the time. They're going to go into those downtime periods mm. where they will get bored. Now, how do you manage that? When you look at teams, even relatively effective teams, you find that boredom can play a real role. And this is not just true of military surgeons. It's true also of people in sports and professional services. I think what's important is to try and distinguish in these environments what kind of boredom we are talking about. Is this the kind of boredom associated with people having nothing to do? And so they become reflective. They just simply don't know what to do with their time, become a bit depressed, have nothing to feel good about. Or is it the kind of boredom that I think is much more common in sports, where so much of what you do is relatively repetitive? Or the boredom you see in many professional service firms is the kind of boredom that arises not from having nothing to do, but from having nothing worthwhile to do. So you can be very, very busy extremely busy but yet very very bored and a lot of the people that I come in contact with I think themselves would admit or have admitted that actually a lot of what they do even at the very senior level is relatively boring because you know and this is the kind of existential boredom I think is much more prevalent in organizations today and in teams and that is actually relatively dysfunctional people in order to function well need to need to have a point there needs to be a point to what it is they do there needs to be some meaning to what they do Um, They need to understand how they themselves fit within not only the team but within the organization and why what they do actually matters and who it matters to. Uh, And we're not always very good at explaining that to people. Mark Durand, thank you. This program was produced by the Cambridge Judge Business School as part of its online broadcast series.